Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm Sally Ganga, and I'm filling in for Beth Heaton, the regular host. Well, summer is almost over, and if you're a high school senior, I hope you've started working on your admission essays, as it's a great idea to do as much as possible before getting busy with school. Now on to today. For my second segment, I'll be talking with Becky Likling, a college admission consultant with College Coach working out of California. She's here to tell us all about the University of California application. Since the UC application is very different from the common application or most other college applications, help is much appreciated. And for our last segment, I'm lucky to have Kathy Ruby, College Coach finance consultant, who will be answering listener questions. But first... I'm, welc- I'm welcoming Olivia Sajadia. Hopefully I pronounced that correctly. Um, Olivia will correct that for me in just a moment. Um, who just joined the College Coach team and came to us directly from American University's Office of Undergraduate Admission. She'll be telling us about American's admission process. So if you're interested in American uh, right here in Washington, D.C., tune in. Welcome, Olivia. Hi, Sally. Hi, and did I get your name right, or was it? Did you, I completely it slaughter it? It sounded a lot fancier coming from you than, than it normally is. So yeah, it was great. Please pronounce it that way. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. All right. We'll just go with it for now. Um, all right. And thanks so much um, for being here today to give us a peek inside the admission office at American. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk about this with you today and our audience. Okay, excellent. So let's start with the basic process. First off, you know, are they on the common application? You know, how is the reading process structured? That kind of thing. Maybe you can sort of, um, you know, start us off with that. Definitely. So, yes, American University is a part of the common application. In terms of the the re- reading and reviewing of the application, it is done first and foremost by geographic territory. So when I worked at American, I worked with students coming from the greater Los Angeles area. I would visit schools out there, give information sessions, do college fairs, interview students. So students who are interested in American, really anywhere across the country, you can certainly reach out to your admission counselor to see if you can set up an interview or anything like that. It really can add to the the application as well. So we would read the applications first by this geographic territory. So I would read all of the students from who are applying from the greater Los Angeles area. I would have gotten a sense of their high school, likely from visiting. If not, we would look through the school profile from the different schools to get a sense of what sorts of course availability there are at those schools, really look at the transcripts. Um, and test scores as well. However, let me note that American is test optional. So students can submit their test scores if they would like to, but they don't have to as a part of the process. So students who don't submit test scores, the transcript would be the thing um, that we would take a look at the most in terms of the academic review. Okay, so that brings... mm -hmm, Oh, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but test optional is something that 
you know, people often get confused about. I, I'm always assuring them if the school says they're test optional, <laughs> they really are test optional and they really are happy to read your application <laughs> without test scores and you will not be disadvantaged. Is that accurate? Give me your perspective. Yes, that is accurate. And as someone who myself uh, went to one of the first colleges in the country to become test optional and I applied to that college without my test scores uh, and got in, it was really nice to be able to work for American that also has a test optional policy where if you don't feel like your test scores really represent the student that you are and your transcripts does, that's wonderful. At American, we did the research on our end to be able to see that students who do well academically inside the classroom have a rigorous curriculum and do well are much, there's more of a correlation of how they're going to do once they get to American as opposed to what their test scores show. So yes, absolutely. Um, If you feel like your transcript can really stand on its own and speak for itself and who you are as a student, submit that transcript and don't feel like you need to submit your test scores. Okay. All right. So that is excellent news. And I really appreciate that. Um, now, how, how big of a boost do early decision students get? Because I think that's always something that people are never sure about. Absolutely. So at American, in general, interest is going to be a big part of the admission process. So along with The things that I outlined earlier, um, you know, either visiting campus or coming to a school visit when we would visit your school or doing an interview or those sorts of things would show that you were interested in American. And we, in turn, really wanted students who were interested in American to be a part of our community. And there's really no bigger way of showing your interest. Uh, than applying early decision and really being prepared to commit to American. So um, students who apply early decision certainly saw um, a higher admit rate overall than regular decision. And we would always uh, tell students that um, in any admission presentation or anything like that. Okay, so you bring up a really good point. So obviously early decision is helpful. Um, And you mentioned a few ways, a few other ways of demonstrating interest. Let's say if a student just wasn't in a position uh, to apply early decision to American, or maybe they didn't find out about American until later in the process. So what are ways that a student then can demonstrate interest, can show American that they're really interested um, in the school, that it is one of maybe their top choices? Absolutely. There there are so many different ways. Um, obviously, visiting, if a student is able to do that, if they're in proximity, that's wonderful. But if not, we traveled all across the country to give it local information sessions. We visited hundreds upon hundreds of different schools across the country and the world. So checking in with us there, um, sitting in and listening to our presentation, maybe doing an interview, maybe coming to a college fair. There are ways, many different ways of showing interest, as well as on the application. There is a supplemental question. It is optional, but I do think that if you, you know, haven't necessarily had the opportunity to express interest in American, the written work on the application um, by the supplement can, can really help out in that regard as well. Okay. And let's definitely um, go back to that. I mean, in general, when there's an optional essay, I really always strongly recommend that, that students do it. Um, so let's let's be sure to set aside some time at the end of the segment to talk about that essay. But what about um, 
like, what would you say is the priority in the reading process? I mean, I think from the discussion we've had so far, it's pretty clear that the transcript is the most important thing, um, at least if a student doesn't submit test scores. So let's say, what if a student doesn't submit or does submit test scores? Or is the SAT or ACT just as important as the transcript? And kind of how does that order fall? Definitely. I would say that there's not necessarily like a set order of things. Ultimately, I would say that regardless of if you're submitting test scores or not, the transcript is going to be the most important thing. I think that test scores, were you to submit them, are going to be, we'll say second, but there was not necessarily a, a tier set up in that regard. Um, and then the we did a whole holistic review of the application as well. We read the essay, the letters of recommendation, the resume, you know, looking to see if a student was in the leadership positions or maybe they had a really strong commitment to certain activities or whatever the case may be. All of that gave us a good sense of whether or not we could see a student being a good fit at American. Um, and all of that is is taken into account as we would review an application. Mm-hmm. So um, a lot of students are kind of concerned about if they're undecided, does that hurt or it, does that hurt them in the process? Do certain majors hurt them in the process? And I, that seems especially um, a good question for me at a school like American. Um, I want to be clear that for most schools, I tell them undecided is completely fine. It's not going to hold you back. Um and that generally speaking, there's not one major that's going to hurt you more than another. If you're applying into general arts and sciences, they're all going to be fairly equal. But American is an interesting case because you're right in Washington, D.C. And so I think you attract a lot of kind of political science, international studies, those kinds of majors. So what are your thoughts on that, on the sort of the major that they declare? Absolutely. That's such a great question. Um, that We did find a lot of students being in D.C. with an interest in international studies and political science. However, major was not a part of the admission process. So, yes, we did see a lot of students apply to those certain majors, but that didn't give them uh, necessarily a boost in the process, and that didn't make those majors more competitive. Students at American are not admitted based on major, so there's not that level of competition there, regardless of what it is you're interested in studying. Okay. All right. And that is really good to hear. I'm always telling students, relax, put down the major that you're interested in. <laughs> Do not try and game the system, because it usually will backfire against you anyway. So. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. All right. So let's go ahead and talk about um, the American University optional essay. Um, do you have it in front of you or do you want me to read it? Either is fine. I have it in front of me. Okay, great. Well, could you read it? Um, at least the most salient parts for the, for, uh, for our listening audience. And then, um, kind of let me, you know, maybe highlight some of the things that are really important to know about. Definitely. And this is actually a new, supplemental question for the year. Over the past couple of years, it has been optional, but the topic changes from year to year. So I can certainly speak to some things I would imagine that they would want to see, but I haven't had the opportunity to read this question specifically. All first-year students will participate in the American University Experience, or AUX, a course specifically designed for students transitioning into their first year of college at AU. AUX classes meet once per week as a small, interactive, and inclusive community. The course provides a place for students to build academic skills for college success 
learn about issues of privilege and bias, and explore their own personal identities. The course also models ways of communicating and living in a diverse society, particularly in reference to addressing divergent opinions on challenging topics. How do you personally define an inclusive environment? What do you believe contributes to a diverse and accepting community? That and you is, have, a, yeah. I'm sorry to yeah. interrupt, that is a no. challenging question for, I think, a 17-year-old. <laughs> much. I mean, I would have to think about that in some depth, and I'm much older than the, the typical applicant. So what, I mean, as you said, you haven't been part of the process um, for this specific question, but yeah, based on history, what do you think might be, um, what do you think they might be looking for uh, in this question, in responses to this question? Definitely. So... There's a one of my favorite parts of the American University campus is called the Center for Diversity and Inclusion. It's a really great space that helps create safe spaces on campus. Um, it's a resource for all students and even staff and faculty at American. So my advice, my sort of insider advice was, would be to learn more about the Center for Diversity and Inclusion. I think that that could fit in well with this sort of question where you can really touch on all of these different elements. I agree that it, it's going to take some critical thinking in terms of how to answer that question. But like with any supplemental question, it's really going to be not just about addressing, you know, one of these many parts that we ask, but also really showing that you've done some research in American. So you can see what some of these classes are like um, and really be able to, to show that you've done a little bit beyond just, saying that you want to be in Washington, D.C., uh, that, that's always the goal for the sort of uh, supplemental question. Okay, so that's very important. And, and um, so when they're thinking about their own class, they should really look at um, what kinds of classes have been, you know, provided already. That seems pretty crucial. Definitely, definitely. Okay. All right, great. All right, so we just have a few minutes left. I mean, really like two minutes. Um, So we don't have time to talk about each specific honors program essays, but in kind of a general statement, um, what do you think they're looking for with the honors program application? So the honors program, as it states, is the most competitive program there is at American, and they do ask a lot of different questions in order to gauge a sense of how you could fit in with the program. So I think not unlike the the supplement that I was just talking about in terms of doing research about the university, one of the questions even asks for to to get a sense of who you might want to. Uh, take a class with or do research with, um, were you to be able to do that? Just really showing that you have this intellectual curiosity, you're understanding what the honors program is like and seeing if and how you could fit into that program. And then your application for admission is taken a look at as well as the answers to these honors questions. So the person reviewing your application can at first gauge a sense of whether or not they think you're going to be a fit. And then it actually moves into a little bit more of a formal committee process when it comes to selecting the candidates for the honors program. Okay, great. So there's, you say there's kind of a committee process of so the faculty are, are involved in it as well, or sort of how is it structured? 
It's more of a committee within the admission office. We do have some input from uh, from different uh, staff, faculty around the office, but when it comes to making the final decisions, it is all out of the admissions office, or at least it was when I was there. Okay. Fair enough, and we won't hold you to it. We understand that these <laughs> things don't always don't always last forever. All right, so did we miss anything? I mean, just, you know, anything that you would want to stress to anyone who's looking at American? I feel like we've touched on really all of the, the different pieces, and I think ultimately whatever school you're interested in, know that the different admission officers at those schools are happy to have these sorts of conversations with you about how the admission process works. It's part of what I loved about being an admission counselor was talking about this when I worked at American. Uh, Okay. So that's one of the best pieces of advice ever. I absolutely want to second that. You know, when I worked in admissions, I was there to help you out. Um, Absolutely. So thank you so much, Olivia. Thank you, Sally. All right, everyone, we're going to take a short break, but when we get back, I'll be speaking with with Becky Eichling about the University of California undergraduate admission process. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. As I mentioned before our break... Now we'll be speaking with Becky Leikling about undergraduate admission at the University of California Schools. Welcome to the show, Becky. Hi, Sally. I'm so glad to be here. Oh, I'm really glad to have you. Um, I find that the UC application is pretty complex, so um, having someone having someone here who's very familiar with it is really helpful. 
Um, one of the first things I want to start with, by the way, because I had a call about this just the other day, uh, the University of California system is not on the common application. So that I can tell people right off the bat. <laughs> so, but maybe you can then, um, let's kind of dive right in, you know, how is the University of California application structured? You know, what are some of the major differences? Let's, let's sort of start right there. Sure. Um, well, so you're spot on, Sally. The UC app is not related to the Common App, but there is a single shared application for all nine undergraduate UC campuses. Um, and unlike the Common App, where there is a consistent body and then you add all of the schools that you want and they might have extra supplements, the UC application is literally a single application. And there's a page where you check the box for all of the campuses you want to send your application to, but then the application you complete is the exact same for all of them. It has a lot of the same components, activities, essays, personal information, educational information, um, but I think the, the biggest difference with the Common App is how it is literally a single application and the fact that students never need to send in their own transcript. They will self-report all of their grades throughout the entire high school experience. But other than that, it's pretty similar in structure to the Common App itself. All right. I think that the the self-reporting thing is pretty confusing to students. Um, I mean, how do the, a lot of them say, well, how do they know I'm not lying? (laughs) Um, Well, so... If you choose to apply to and enroll at a UC campus, you will need to send your official final transcript in July after your senior year. And if you were lying, then you better believe that your application might be rescinded, your acceptance letter might be rescinded. Um, So don't lie. Um, Also, I think one of the most confusing parts with regards to accuracy is that a lot of high schools have a lot of different names for their classes. You know, they might call something honors geometry, but then the next year it might be called geometry honors. And all of those subtle changes are reflected on the student's transcript and are reflected on the list of courses that every California high school submits to the UC system. So when kids are entering their transcript information, they need to make sure they're entering the exact course as it was titled the year they took it on their transcript in the UC application form. Okay, so that's pretty important because that's very, very different from the common application where they are going to be reviewing an official transcript from the school. Um, With the students, they've got to get everything exactly right because the counselors will not have the transcript next to them when they're reading it. The admission counselors, I think. Okay, all right. And so does anybody know why they do it this way? I mean, I'm not saying that you should know, but I'm just kind of curious. <laughs> well, so UCLA has had over 100,000 applicants for their freshman class. I don't think they have the time to deal with all the pieces of paper that would be added to that responsibility if they were also requesting you know, transcripts from every single student. Um, I think this tool allows them to get the data they need much more quickly. Um, and they do have a pretty um, well, you know, well thought out process, you know, because kids are entering the classes exactly as they are in their transcript and all the schools in California have previously submitted those classes. It's really easy for the UC system to then use all that information to calculate the GPAs. So it, it probably really helps their reading process that they can do a lot of that assessment by computer. 
Fair enough. And actually, it probably is a big time saver for the high school counselors in California as well. That's thousands of transcripts that they don't have to send (laughs) out. So, um, all right, that makes sense. What about differences in how it's read? You know, do the UCs, I mean, some of the information overlaps. You know, they still look Mm -hmm. at essays, which we'll be talking about later. As you said, they still look at activities. They're still looking at transcripts and grades or not transcripts, but they're still looking at courses and grades. So but what are what are there any differences in how they evaluate um, the information that they have in front of them? So the UC is really trying to do its best job to um, identify the most powerful potential students across the entire diverse state of California. And part of the way they do that is to kind of remove any identifying factors that might um, change the perspective of the reader. So, for example, you know, I worked at Tufts before I joined College Coach. When Adam applied to Tufts, I knew his name was Adam. I, I saw all that information. But with the UC system, they remove name. They remove racial or national background. They remove all the personal factors that might change the way the reader evaluates your application. So it really is truly based on what has this student done how does the student present themselves and talk about themselves um, without considering all the other factors that go into that. And those factors certainly are considered, but they're considered separately um, in a different part of the review process than your application is read and your your grades are looked at. So they're really trying to make it a very kind of bureaucratic meritocracy as much as they can. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that is very different. Um, Now, the other thing that I was thinking about, and this will lead us right into the essays, is that because they don't take recommendations, or at least they don't take them for all the students, um, in some ways the essays, their essays kind of almost end up functioning and serving some of the same purpose as recommendations do on the common application. Is that how you would think about it? Or, you know, just kind of talk to me about how you see the purpose of the essays and and how they can be most useful to the student. I hadn't thought about it that way, Sally. Um, so last year, the UCs changed the way they solicit essays. They used to ask for two long, you know, 500-word personal statements, and now they ask for four short responses of 350 words each. Um, and I, I think this change really benefits students. It allows them to think about all the ways in which they're awesome and special and great, um, and I, rather than trying to find one thing that seems super important that just has to be shared. And so I, I feel like the applications I've read the last two years do feel much more conversational. They feel much more comprehensive. Um, and so in many ways, it feels less less formal than a big personal statement. Um, I'm curious what, what when you say that they're kind of replacements for recommendation letters, where, where are you coming from with that? Sure, absolutely. I mean, I think that, just so you know, I, I really like the the new question um, format as well, where you can pick out, you know, the best four. But because they say things like, describe an example of your leadership experience, you know, um, 
Ah. Each, each person has a creative side. What's your greatest talent or skill? You know, these are all things yeah. that typically would be in a really good letter of recommendation. Think about an academic subject that inspires you. How have you furthered this interest inside or outside the classroom, right? So a lot of these things are, you know, and, and they're like little tidbits, right? Like each essay is shorter, I mean, not that little, they're 350 words, but so that's why I sort of think about it that way, because a good teacher recommendation is going to have some of this information. Yeah, I like that. I like that perspective. Um, I do think it allows kids to write in different voices, certainly their voice the entire time, but different parts of themselves that um, might not be the one thing they highlighted in a single essay, but to your point, you kind of get to pull from so many different aspects of who they are. Um, I hadn't thought of it that way, but I, I, I like I like that kind of idea of corroborating messages. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so how do you how do you make I mean, one of the things that I think is challenging for students is sort of how they balance. Like, you know, they have more choices in some ways, right? Um, which is a good thing, but it can be more complicated. So how do you how do you help them when you're working with a student kind of pick which essay topics they're gonna be using? So I actually start with brainstorming before we look at the topics um, with the idea that, you know, this is, this is your life to tell. This is your story to share. The UC is asking so many different prompts because they really do want to make sure every kid knows that their story is welcome, their story is invited and important. And so by just starting with an open brainstorm, the kid is in the driver's seat. They're deciding what is worth sharing. Um, and so, you know, we talk about what are the pieces of you that really feel important, that they have to know about you in order to understand who you are, um, that really, you know, show the way you've grown and evolved over high school. And once we kind of start from that perspective, usually there are three or four ideas that rise to the top that seem really important. And the questions that the UC offers are so varied that in my experience, most students are able to find four questions that align with the pieces of who they are that they want to share. Hmm. So what, I mean, is there, and that actually sounds like a really good process, and I usually have them look at the topics first, but I think I'm going to try that now. But is there <laughs> is there an option that they tend to use more than others? Um, I think a lot of kids end up using topic eight, which is essentially topic of your choice. What else does the UC need to know about you that you haven't <laughs> shared already? Um, mm-hmm. I also think a lot of kids do uh, number four, which mm-hmm. is an, a significant educational opportunity or an educational barrier that you faced, because I think a lot of kids who are applying to the UCs have either had something, you know, in their summers or in their classrooms that really did push them above and beyond, for better or for worse. Um, so I think that, that speaks to a lot of different sorts of kids as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. But it sounds like on the bottom line, when a student is thinking about the UC applications, they should come up with a list of things that they definitely want the school to know about them, um, keeping in mind that the UCs will have access to their list of activities. So right. it's, it's not about yeah. listing activities. You know, I, I work with a student who um, came to me a little bit later in their process, and so they had already come up with ideas for these essays. And the way they had done it was by literally answering the question. So they talked about a class they were inspired by. They talked about a leadership experience they'd had. But 
because they were answering the questions, their answers didn't actually really fit together to paint a picture of who they were. That kid happened to play soccer, and soccer was nowhere in these essays because it hadn't been the place where the leadership challenges had occurred. And the student was also, you know, played trumpet and was really interested in music and was thinking and minoring in that. But none of those passions were included just because, you know, the questions hadn't specifically prompted that. Um, and I think that was to his disadvantage that he wasn't talking about what he needed to talk about or what he wanted to talk about. So I, I always want students to answer the questions, but I want them to answer the questions knowing that the reason the questions are being asked it's because the reader wants to know about who you are. So make sure the you is in charge and really the center of all your responses. Mm-hmm. All right. And so the last question I think is since, um, you know, often when people are applying, you know, maybe UC Berkeley is their top choice or something like that. And so I talk to people sometimes who want to kind of tailor the application towards one school more than another. And I always tell them, look, just do your best job because these are things that you can't, you can't really control. So I'm just wondering about your advice on this. I agree. Um, the UCs are not asking a question along the lines of why do you want to go to Berkeley or why do you want to go to Irvine? They're asking about personal reflection and, again, putting you at the center. You are the same person, whether you prefer Berkeley or whether you prefer, you know, Santa Cruz. That's, that's not what they're asking about. So I totally agree with your advice, Sally. Focus on where you're coming from, not where you are, you know, dreaming that you might be admitted. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Great. Any last thing that that you would want people to know if they were using the UC application or have we pretty well covered it? I would just say that, you know, this is going to be your last Thanksgiving at home with your family. I would try to complete your application before Thanksgiving rather than spending the whole holiday in your room pounding out essays. Right. The other thing I would say, by the way, is I don't know if this is still the case, but a few years ago, I know that the server would really slow down in sort of the day of the deadline and like a couple days before. Oh, my God, that's my nightmare. Yeah, yeah. I tell students, just do not do that to yourself. Get it done early. You will make your life that much better to do that. So, all right. Okay, well, thank you so much, Becky. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Sally. Okay, so um, what I wanted to do now, we have a new school spotlight segment um, here on Getting In. So today I wanted to highlight Grinnell College in Grinnell, Iowa. And by the way, if you want to find out more about it, you'll find these school spotlight segments on our Facebook page. So here's, here's our little segment on Grinnell. Social responsibility isn't just a a catchy phrase at Grinnell College, it's also a way of life. Students in this artsy, intellectual college town are committed to a philosophy of personal responsibility and self-governance, and many graduates go on to fulfill their dreams of making positive change in the world. The college provides ample opportunities for its 1,700 students to engage with the world beyond their progressive Midwestern town. The global... The very popular Global Learning Program features semester-long tutorials that immerse students in two or more international cultures while studying specific themes such as migration in Greece, Spain, and the southwestern U.S., and tolerance in France and Germany. After completing a first-year tutorial course, Grinnellians are exempt from any core requirements. 
A flexible curriculum and personalized advising gives students the chance to start their own academic journeys. Fun fact, over 500 free events take place on campus each year. On a typical spring day, students could peruse a photography exhibition in the Falconer Gallery, enjoy lunch with faculty and students at the Japanese table, unwind in a yoga session, partake in a club soccer practice, relax to the strains of a string quartet performance and work up a sweat at a belly dance rehearsal. So obviously Grinnell is a pretty special place and I like to highlight it because Grinnell is in the middle of Iowa. It's in a very small town called Grinnell and yet it has this incredibly international and outward facing um, aspect to the student body and to the school itself. So if you're thinking about being overseas, if you want that international uh, point of view, um, don't discount Grinnell just because it's in Iowa. It's, it's a great place for that. All right, so we're now going to take a short break, but when we get back, Kathy Ruby will be answering listener questions about how to pay for college. So stick around. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. In this segment, Kathy Ruby will be answering listener questions on paying for college. Welcome, Kathy. Hi, Sally. Thanks so much for being here with me today. I really appreciate it. Happy to be here. All right. So a listener named John um, said, I checked with my bank and I can get a better rate on a home equity loan than on a college loan. Am I missing something? Is there any reason we should be borrowing college loans instead of home equity loans? 
All right. Well, that's a that's a great question, and that's something I think that many people are discovering at this time of year as they actually start to figure out how they're going to finance um, their kids' college. Um, John is right to a certain extent that um, for most educational loans right now, um, the interest rates are probably higher than what you might be able to get on a home equity loan. So, um, But there are some things to consider about whether you actually want to use a home equity loan, and the answers here can vary from family to family. Um, so the first thing is that you know, if you want your student to borrow, um, there is a federal loan that students can borrow, and essentially they can get $27,000 um, over the course of four years for an undergraduate degree. And so um, that interest rate right now is 4.45%. And, of course, the difference there is that's a loan that your student will have to repay. And so from a, you know, just from a family standpoint, you need to think about, okay, well, how much do I want to borrow and how much do I want my student to borrow? What's a reasonable amount for my student to borrow? Um, so you might want to think about having your student borrow. Um, but then beyond that, there are, um, there's a parent loan from the government that's currently at 7%. Um, and then there are a variety of private and state loans where the fixed interest rates could be, I guess, anywhere, uh, anywhere from 3 or 4% to much higher than that. Um, and, and it's pretty likely that you could find uh, maybe your home equity loan is cheaper. But, of course, what you need to think about is you're going to be tying up equity in your home for your child's education. And <laughs> they can't come and take your child's education away, um, but they can take your home away, right, if you, don't, if you can't afford to pay the, the loan. Um, so you'll just want to keep that in mind, and everybody has a different approach to that, and some people are not willing to tie up equity in that way. Um, mm-hmm. So one of the advantages of using a home equity loan, of course, is that for most people, the interest is deductible on your taxes. And student loan interest or parent loan interest can be tax deductible up to $2,500 a year of it. Um, but there are some income limits on that. So if you're married filing jointly and you make more than $160, you are not going to be able to, or your adjusted gross income is more than $160, you won't be able to deduct the interest. So there are many reasons a home equity loan can be cheaper. Um, you just have to think carefully about whether or not you want to tie up that equity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does sound like a very personal decision for a family to make. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Because, yeah, risking your home is obviously a stressful thing, so... Yeah, but he's not missing anything. He's right. That rate is probably lower than what's out there for the most part. All right. So a listener named Jake asked or said, I'm getting ready to complete the FAFSA, the free application for federal student aid, and Mm -hmm. I have a question. My wife and I own a business. It's an S corporation. So income from the business flows through on our personal tax return. We're also paying off a loan we took out to purchase the business. Will this get accounted for anywhere? We're only allowed to count the interest we pay on the loan as an expense on our taxes, not the principal portion. So how will this get counted? (laughs) That's a little bit of a complicated question, but we probably do have listeners out there who have businesses and have as corporations. So I think it's it's a good good topic to talk about. Um, So let's just step back for a minute and think about how this business will get reported in general on the FAFSA. In other words, what will get, what will get reported. Um, so the first thing is if it's a business um, that is 
the family owns more than 50% of it, which it sounds like that's the case here, and that's probably the case for most S-corporations. Um, if they own more than 50% of it and they uh, there are fewer than 100 employees, then actually it does not get reported as an asset on the FAFSA. So that's a good thing. That means that the value of the business is not going to have to be counted anywhere. Um, but then, of course, the income from the business flows through on, on the individual's tax return. But the good thing there is that, you know, they've probably um, been able to count some expenses against that income, like mileage and depreciation and meals and entertainment. So the income that they end up having to report from their tax return um, is probably lower than what their actual income was. So that's, that's actually a benefit of having an S corporation. Um, the loan itself, though, is not going to be counted. Um, you know, as, as he said, the interest is counted as an expense, so it's reducing his income, so that gets captured there. But the principal portion, even if they're paying it out of personal funds, um, does not get counted. And that's because the formula that calculates the contribution doesn't count any kinds of expenses for a family. They really just make a blanket assumption about what a family's minimal expenses might be. So in that situation, um, he could write to the financial aid office and explain the situation and document that loan um, and document what his payments are and how much is interest and how much is principal. Um, and he could, he could see whether they would take it into account. Um, a financial aid administrator might use professional judgment to try to shelter some of his income because he's having to pay that business loan. Um, you know, another situation that I saw frequently when I worked at a college was people who owned S corporations would write to us and say, you know, this income shows on my tax return, but we're actually taking everything we make from the business and putting it back into the business. And so they would want us to exclude that income from consideration. Um, and that's another that's another appeal um, where you would need to really carefully document that you really are putting all the money back into the business. Um, and then a financial aid professional might take it into account, but it's going to be on a case-by-case basis whether or not they do. So for the most part, though, owning a business, usually you come out better on the FAFSA than you would if you were just a straight wage earner. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Good to know. All right. And so then uh, Christina, who it sounds like she's a current student because she writes, how do I get a work-study job? Ah, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> all right. So getting a job, always a good thing. Um, so uh, so if – so. Work-study is actually a form of financial aid. So if you were awarded work-study on your financial aid award, um, that essentially means um, that you were given priority in hiring on in on-campus jobs. Because um, work-study is a form of financial aid because the government actually gives money to schools to help them pay students who are working on campus. So colleges try to distribute that money <clears throat> to they're neediest students. So usually if you're a needy student, um, if you're, you're, you may be awarded work-study and what you get just represents the most that you can earn. So you want to read through the terms of your award, um, reach out to the financial aid office, or usually there's a student employment office. Um, but at most colleges, there's some kind of an online job board. Um, and we do encourage students to get started on this 
um, even during the summer before they go to college um, because they can start to scope out the situation. Um, If you're already in school and you're trying to figure this out, um, talk to your classmates um, because lots of times there's a network of sort of, oh, this is where you go to get this job and this is who you need to talk to here. So just keep talking to people about getting a job. Um, If you don't have work-study in your financial aid award, that doesn't mean you can't work on campus most of the time. Um, There are many colleges that will allow other students to work, too. Um, They just give priority to the kids who have work-study. But Mm -hmm. um, I will say I worked in, I don't know how many different colleges, three or four different colleges, and every one of them, the food service, was always looking for a few good people (laughs) to work. Yeah. Yeah, without a doubt. That is one of the less popular um, yeah. jobs on campus. But there's a lot of great jobs that you can still get even without work study. I mean, in admissions, um, we actually usually had some work study students, but we also had students who were not work study. Uh, the library as well. And the library is a great job because you can yeah. study while you're working. Right. <laughs> so. Another another popular one is the advancement office at a particular colleges often will hire people to call alumni and ask them for money. Um, and if, if that's something that you're kind of, you know, you have fun with, um, it is fun because you get to talk to alumni and usually uh, <laughs> kids are well fed during those kinds of events and it can be a fun, fun kind of a job and good experience. Oh yeah. Lots of pizza, lots of, lots pizza of pizza, lots of, lots of cookies and treats. So, um, you know, just check out the student employment office at your, at your campus and then talk to all your friends, um, especially upper class students, cause they'll have a good sense of how things work on your particular college campus. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Definitely. All right. So Molly asked, can my daughter change her repayment plan on her student loans? She just graduated and shows the standard 10-year plan. Absolutely. Yes, she can change her plan. So it sounds like she may be having trouble making the standard 10-year payment. Um, And so that's an excellent reason to reach out to her loan servicer and ask about the other kinds of repayment programs that are available for her. Um, She may, especially since she just graduated, um, she may very likely qualify for one of the income-driven repayment plans where they'll collect information about what her income was in the most recent calendar year, and then they'll um, they'll look at her household size, and then they'll offer her a variety of payments that will hold her payment to a, a certain percentage of her discretionary income, and that can make her payments much more reasonable if that 10-year plan um, <clears throat> isn't working. So yes, you can change your repayment plan anytime um, if you're having difficulty with the original <clears throat> standard 10-year plan. Sorry, got to get a drink here. <laughs> No problem. Um, While you're drinking, I will read the next question. All right. All right. So Clarice asked, uh, my daughter just graduated from medical school and has $140,000 in student loans. She'll be making $50,000 a year in her residency. Can she defer the loans? Aha, uh-huh. that's, that's, boy, that's a lot of debt, right? But that's, that's what happens in medical school these days, right? Is there is mm-hmm. a lot of debt. Um, so the answer is she can't technically defer the loans, but there is a program called Medical Residency Forbearance where she can put, um, 
she can put her loans in forbearance for a year at a time. She applies each year um, that she's in her residency program. And so she can get into a situation where she's not required to make payments. Um, and, uh, and certainly that's, that's an option for her. Um, the thing to remember there, if she does that, um, is that their interest is, my guess is most of her loans are unsubsidized because she probably borrowed them in medical school and, and loans that you borrow in graduate professional school generally are unsubsidized loans, which means interest is always accruing on those loans. So she can put the loans in forbearance, and that's fine, and it you know won't hurt her credit. But she should be aware that the loans will continue growing while she's in residency um, at a rate. I did the math. I mean, if we think her interest rates around six percent, six or seven percent, it's probably about eight or nine thousand dollars per year that's accruing in interest on those loans. So let's say her residency is you know three years long. After those three years. She'll have about twenty, twenty-five to thirty thousand dollars of interest that will get added um, to the principal amount that she already borrowed. So it's it's something to keep in mind. Um, the other thing to remember is if she is somebody who thinks she might work in a nonprofit hospital setting, and if she's at a nonprofit, um, especially if she's at a nonprofit for her residency, um, she could think about going into one of those income-driven repayment plans, um, where they'll look at her residency income and they'll and her household size, and then they'll tell her how much she needs to pay. Um, and she might have to pay something, but it should be affordable. Um, and those payments, if she's also working in a nonprofit, can count toward the public service loan forgiveness program, which is the, the federal program where if you make 120 payments, and they don't have to be consecutive, but 120 payments while you're working at a nonprofit or a governmental agency and you're making payments in the income-driven repayment plan, um, any one of them, um, then after 10 years, after those 120 payments, the rest of your loans are forgiven. So that's something else she'd want to consider. There's a federal loan repayment estimator on the website, studentaid.ed.gov, that she can use to, to play with the different repayment plans and see how they might play out. Mm-hmm. So a very long and technical answer. But yes, she can technically, she can put them in forbearance, but she should be aware of the interest and she might want to think about an income-driven repayment plan if she's working on public service loan forgiveness and trying to get her loans forgiven after 10 years. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, listen, thanks so much. I think that's all we have time for today. Oh, okay. So thank- <laughs> Great. Yeah, th- thanks for coming on, Kathy. And um, thank you to all my guests today. Now I want to tell you about our show next week, hosted by my colleague, Beth Heaton. She and her guests will be discussing challenges faced by first-generation students when they arrive at college, how to handle those why this college essay questions on some college applications, and tools you can use to research colleges from a financial perspective. Finally, I want to remind you that you don't have to listen to our shows live. Every show is accessible 24-7 on the Voice America website, and you can also download every show for free on iTunes. If you check out the archives, you'll find shows with subjects as varied as Who Really Gets Into Harvard and um, our very recent one, Changes to the Common Application, this year. We aired on August 17th. So if you if you were familiar with last year's Common Application and want to know about the changes, we have that available to you. 
And I wanted to mention, too, if you like our show, please be sure to rate us on iTunes. It only takes a moment of your time, and it's absolutely free. Last, don't forget, we're here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time. So check us out. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. We'll be right back.